The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Industry Cloud Trends with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's cloud strategy and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, 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 and if you want to run with the Game Changers, you're in the right place. Uh, An announcement to our listeners, those of you who are on listen-only mode, we'd love for you to tweet comments and questions. You'll find us on Twitter at hashtag S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Put it all together, and that's SAP Radio. Let me get started. The buzz today, well, pardon me for waxing a little bit poetic and maybe nursery rhyme, but E-I-E-I, uh-oh, you know what I'm talking about. Let's get down to business. The world population is expected to reach 9 billion people in 2050. Do the math. We're now 2015. It's not that far off. Perhaps even more urgent than we know we're supposed to provide clean water, yes. Sustainable energy, yes. Accessible health care, yes. Everyone needs that. But if you're not feeding all those mouths in a sustainable manner, you might not have anybody to send that energy, health care, and clean water to. Really, really important. How can we do it? It's a huge, formidable task. Well, it calls for a whole bunch of things. An independent, big data-enabled, trusted, secure platform. I know that's a mouthful. That has the goal of simplifying collaboration among farmers. Yes, we're talking about farmers and seed producers and crop protection chemical suppliers and fertilizer suppliers and equipment manufacturers, commodity traders, data brokers, you name it. And all together, we need a collaboration that will let them focus on driving improved crop yields. We have to feed 9 billion mouths, and it's urgent. We have a great panel today. Uh, we're, we're looking for one. It hasn't dialed in yet, but I'm just going to announce his name in hopes that he joins us. First up on the panel will be Steve Pitsick. He's the owner and operator of Steve Pitsick Farms, and we're hoping Steve will join us, but let me move on. Also today, I'm going to introduce our, our first, second panelist. It's Nick Evans. He's the founder of F4F. That's first for farming. Put it all together with the numeral four in the middle. And Nick sent me the following quote from Lyle M. Spencer. Those of you wondering who he was, he was a 27-year-old grad student in sociology at the University of Chicago back in 1938 when he founded Science Research Associates. And here's the quote Nick said. You can teach a turkey to climb a tree, but it is easier to hire a squirrel. (laughs) Nick Evans, welcome to the show. How are you today? Thank you very much indeed, Bonnie. Well, uh, I'm calling from uh, all the way from the UK today, so um, it's good to hear you over in the US. I'm very good. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Great quote. By the way, Steve just joined us, and Steve, you'll be up next, so just be patient. So, Nick Evans, tell us about this great quote from Lyle Spencer. Why, why are we having a turkey climb a tree, and how do we go out and hire a squirrel? What is this all about in relation to our topic of precision farming, our big big challenge? 
Well, well, Bonnie, it's, um, it's to do really with, uh, with specialization, and it's not directly related to this particular topic, but it's to do with specialization and ensuring that you have the right people in the, right, in, in the organization to do the tasks which you assign them to. And um, as, you've, uh, as you've seen from my resume, you, uh, I've looked after a number of businesses uh, in my career and lucky enough to have worked with uh, some great people. But uh, the key to any organization is, of course, having the right management and staff in the organization itself to, to carry out the tasks. And I've found that if you start with the right material, it makes the job a lot easier. And hence, if it's, uh, you, can, you can train a turkey, but it's better to hire a squirrel. Okay, good to know. We'll be talking to you a lot more during the show. Thank you so much for joining us, Nick. Uh, and let me bring back, go back to position number one on the panel. We do have Steve Pitsick. He's the owner and operator of Steve Pitsick Farms. And Steve sent me this wonderful quote from Victor Hugo. Those of you scratching your heads, if you're very, very young, Victor Marie Hugo is a French poet, novelist, and dramatist of the Romantic movement, considered one of the greatest and best-known French writers. So there, here's the quote from Victor Hugo. All the forces in the world are not so powerful as an idea whose time has come. Steve, welcome. How are you today? Hey, good morning. Sorry for my tardiness. This, this time differential got me a little goofed up here, but we're on. We're ready to go. So We're happy to have you here. Talk to me about this interesting quote from Victor Hugo. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on in, in farms today. Uh, there's, there's a lot of ideas that have been out there a long time. They just were not implementable uh, because we didn't have the technology. Finally, with the Internet of Things, with uh, high-end, fast computers, uh, a lot of different uh, mobile technologies, we can bring this information to a platform now and start to analyze it that we couldn't do just two years ago. So the time has come. The time has come. Yes, it wasn't that a quote also, the time has come, the walrus said? Yes, 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 that's Jabberwocky, I believe. Do you remember that, Steve? I do not, but... Okay, I'll look up the quote and I'll get it for you. Thank you so much for joining us. And rounding out our panel today is Lauren McCallum. She's a solution manager in the chemical and agrochemical industry business group at SAP. And Lauren has sent me a wonderful quote from Sir Arthur Charles Clarke, who is a British science fiction writer, science writer, and a futurist. Oh, my goodness, he was an inventor, an undersea explorer. I bet he knew Jacques Cousteau and a TV series host. And here's the Clarke quote. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I want to say poof. Lauren McCallum, welcome. How are you today? I'm fine, Bonnie. Thanks. Uh, of shoes and ships and sealing wax and cabbages and kings is the rest of the time. Has <laughs> ah, ah, Lewis thank you, dear. Carroll. Lewis uh, Carroll, that. that's right. I should have picked that. Um, I picked this because, well, A, I'm like a big reader of science fiction, um, but it strikes me, and I'm also a farmer. Besides working for a software company, I run a farm. And as I look at the farms around me every day, as I drive, when I drive the hour into work, I realize that a lot of the things that happen on these farms today that are possible now, my grandparents and certainly my grandparents, great-grandparents would have thought were complete magic. Like, for example, spraying a chemical on a field that kills only the weeds but not the corn and the soybeans. Mm-hmm. You told my grandfather that, he would say, yeah, right. So let me think. Driving a harvester through a field and the tractor pulling the grain wagon, it just follows behind your harvester, but there's nobody driving it. Mm-hmm. That, that, that works. Uh, That's magic. Cows go into a milking parlor 
They're yep. automatically milked. Nobody touches them. A it's milking like parlor? Do they have to dress up for that, Lauren? They do. They do. They get their nails done, too. <laughs> Keep going. Oh well, those are those are just a couple of examples. So I te- I keep trying to put it in perspective. Like when I was a kid, I read this Heinlein novel called Farmer in the Sky. Um, you go back and read science fiction, and you look at farms today, and there, there's a connection. Lauren, how many women are in farming today? I have to ask. I wasn't planning to do any uh, gender questions here on the show, but I must ask. You own a farm. You work at SAP. You work in technology, and obviously farming is is in your blood. How did you come to own a farm? Could you just tell us briefly? Well, about maybe my family way back when farmed, as did my husband's, but that's like going back a couple generations. And we finally moved to a part of the country, southeastern Pennsylvania, where we had an opportunity to buy a farm and run it uh, and live on it. And so that was how we did it. Uh, It's a great counterpoint to working in technology. I bet it is. Very, very interesting. And how many women? There are some really – we learned to farm. We were mentored by the great old grand lady of sheep farming in southeastern Pennsylvania who ran a sheep farm for years and is – She's no longer uh, with us, but there are a number of women in farming, um, increasingly so, I'm happy to say. Lauren, I'm looking at the women farmers in the 2012 Census of Agriculture at USDA.gov, and they say that, uh, let's see, in 2012, the number of women farmers in the U.S. was 969,672,000. And that they were 7%. Yes, my goodness, my goodness, a lot. I, I might have to do a little uh, share of U.S. farms operated by women nearly tripled over the past three decades. And there's another report, U.S. Statistics on Women and Minorities on Farms. Very interesting. Thank you for that, Lauren. Guess what? I'm going to circle back to Steve. I'm putting you back in the number one spot where I had you originally, Steve. And I'm going to ask you to share with us, you know, this show is Industry Cloud Trends with Game Changers Radio, presented by SAP. But the the big show this is all part of is my, my flagship show, Coffee Break with Game Changers. So I always ask my guests, what are you drinking right now, if it's interesting or not? If it's not interesting, what are you planning to drink? after the show. So, Steve Pitsick, you're up first. What are you drinking today? Uh, I'm, I'm not drinking anything right now. I was just working on some machines when you caught me. Um, I plan to have a good beer when I get done. So, um, And what kind of beer would that be? Um, probably a Stella. Okay. And where are you located? We want to know. Where is your farm? Okay. I'm just, I'm just about 50 miles straight west of Chicago in the uh, good old Midwest USA. Okay. Thank you very much, Steve. Glad you came in from the machines to do another another machine project here. Nick Evans, I know you're in the UK. Nick, what time of day is it and what are you drinking now or what are you planning after the show? Well, it's quarter past five in the uh, in the afternoon now, Bonnie, so um it's not quite time for my favorite tipple, but um it's nearly <laughs> there. And um uh, the UK as you the UK as you know was uh has, has long been famous for its uh microbreweries and its, and its brewing industry. Going back you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, we've, uh, we've been famous for growing hops and, uh, and brewing beers. And, um, and we have, a, in fact, it's a, re, a, a reviving tradition as well of real ales over here in, uh, in the UK. And um, I particularly like real ales, and I'm based up in the northwest of, uh, northwest of the UK in a town called uh, Chester. It's an old Roman okay. town. 
and uh, there's some great pubs in the area and uh, where you can get real ales. And my favourite real ale is for a, a, a brewery called Wheatwood, which uh, is a microbrewery just uh, located not uh, 10 miles from where I live, which supplies a lot of the local pubs. And they have a particularly fine ale called an Eastgate, which uh, is named after the clock in Chester and on their old Roman walls. And uh, you can't beat a pint of Eastgate in a pub on an evening just to relax and, uh, and unwind from the, from the day. It sounds wonderful. I think we're all going to come on over there and join you. But first, we have to find out what Lauren McK- Lauren, where are you calling from today, and what are you drinking, Lauren? I, I can't ask you to top this, but you no, can try. Go no, ahead, Lauren. You can't. Nick is so much closer to his beer than I am because I'm in southeastern <laughs> Pennsylvania, so it's just afternoon. But when I am done working today, I got to continue the beer thing. I will be drinking a beer from Victory Brewing which is a Pennsylvania craft brewery that is not 10 miles from my house. Mm. And I will, be, I, I will be drinking their White Monkey, which is brewed in oak casks. Uh, and, not brewed in, sorry. That shows how much I know about the technology of brewing. <laughs> Aged in oak casks might be right. Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah. And I have an a, a, a ulterior motive here. My husband has hot vines growing out mm. in the backyard, and most of the craft brewers here are convinced that they have to get their hops from Europe. You know, and no disrespect to your hops over there, Nick, but hops grow really well in Pennsylvania, and we would love to be able to convince some of the local craft breweries to source hops locally, which would mean we could have another crop on the farm, you see. Nick, any comments on that? Well, well hops, uh, the, the thing about hops is it's a very labor-intensive crop, at least historically it has been, and, um, and hence in, in the way that many parts of agriculture have gone. So intensification and, uh, uh, of, of that industry has meant that the big growers have got bigger and the, and the smaller growers have just, uh, have just drifted away. You're right. I don't know if you can um, pick them mechanically. Do you have to pick them all by hand? I think there are mechanical hop pickers now, and uh, it's a very specialist sector, and I'm not too, I'm not too uh, sure on that, but I'm, I'm fairly sure that there are mechanical um, hop harvesters now, yes. Well, I have, this is Bonnie. I have a little side note about hops. I recently learned through a friend who's a devotee of Dr. Oz on, uh, on American TV. I don't know if he's made it across the pond or anywhere else, but Dr. Hop, Dr. Hops, Dr. Oz had a specialist on who said that for people with insomnia, if you drink non-alcoholic beer, and I know because I went looking for some, and Odul's has a nice six-pack, not cheap, and it is non-alcoholic beer, and the hops has a sedative, sedative feature that will help calm people down. You're supposed to drink a half a glass of non, non-booze beer about an hour before you go to sleep, and a friend told me that this has been known for years and years and years, and young mothers decades ago were drinking non-alcoholic beer before they nursed their babies because the the transmission of the hops through the mother's milk would help to calm the children. Anybody care to comment on that one before we go to break? <laughs> Did you know that, Lauren? <laughs> You know, I I did, and in the 19th century and earlier, people made pillows out of dried hops to sleep on them because they thought the aroma was also sleep-inducing. So I actually made a hop pillow out of some of the hops that we dried in our backyard. I have to say, it was uncomfortable. <laughs> better drunk than slept on, right? Exactly. Or better... It smelled nice. It did. But um, I don't know. 
Okay. Well, we've got some recipes here. We're making pillows and we're having some non-alcoholic hops loaded beer before we go to sleep and we're going to have a better night's rest. Guess what? I'm speaking today with three experts on the field of precision farming. Our topic is how big data in parentheses, how big data can you grow your garden? Our challenge today is to help the world figure out how we can feed the population that is exploding to 9 billion and probably more, I'm guessing, by the year 2050, which is not that far off. So we're talking about the global challenge of sustainably feeding all of these mouths, and they are hungry, probably more than they're thirsty. You're listening to Industry Cloud Trends with Game Changers Radio, presented by SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. We are live today is Tuesday, March 31st, 2015. And when we come back, I'll be picking the brains even more as they're out in the fields with Steve Pitsick at Steve Pitsick Farms, Nick Evans at First Four Farming, that's a number four in the middle there, and Lauren McCallum at SAP. And Lauren, after the break, you can tell us what the name of your farm is. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. You want to hear this one, whether you're a hungry mouth or you're a farmer or anybody on the supply chain from food, garden, field to table. I covered it all. We'll be right back. Brad out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. SAP, co-innovating alongside customers, is taking its industry-specific solutions into the cloud. Join us to learn how to make the world run simpler in the cloud without missing a beat. It's a tall order. Industry Cloud Trends with Game Changers brings together the people who are making it happen. We'll delve into very specific industry challenges and also solutions that run across disparate industries, all to help you succeed in your mission. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of change. Industry Cloud Trends with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Industry Cloud Trends with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show using Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Industry Cloud Trends with Game Changers. Here we are. Welcome back. We're talking today about precision farming. How big data can you grow your garden? That's right. We're marrying technology and farming, and we're going to get a great result. First up on the roundtable, I'm going to invite Steve Pitsick to talk to me. And Steve sent me some fascinating notes before the show. He says, many of today's farmers use four methods to make crop decisions. Everybody listen up. The first one is what I should have done last year. The second one is what dad or grandpa, and I'm going to add for the benefit of Laura McKellen, or grandma always, or mom always did. Number three is a hunch. And number four is data that a supplier is using to sell their product, and that usually wins out. And the bottom line, Steve says, is today's farmer rarely uses, rarely uses his own historical data. Talk to us. What's the problem with this? Steve, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so... I've been doing this for quite a while, uh, gathering data and whatever, but there's not a good sense of what to do with that data. Uh, we've got a lot of yield data. We've been doing some of this stuff 20 years, but we don't have the backstory, all the other things that go into making up yield, uh, machine data, 
chemical seed application, weather data. We just don't have this stuff. And, and now, finally, in the last year or so, um, because of different technologies, we've been able to bring all this stuff together. And now we can sort, uh, do spatialists sort, uh, look at data uh, that, that drives yield and, and better determine what it is that, that makes up uh, that, that eventual goal of yield for us. Steve, what's going to change? How are we going to get the farmer to change? Talk to me about what I should have done, shoulda, woulda, coulda, and grandpa and mom and dad and aunt and uncle and what the farmer down the road and the hunches. What's it going to take to make the hunches get replaced by real data, by data that has meaning and, and that you can track and that will be a productive way of thinking? How do you change the culture is what I'm asking. Yeah, we've got to, we've got to see profitability and, and economic reasons for farmers to change. And, and farmers will change once they see that stuff. But right now we've had, we've had kind of a struggle of how do we get this data, and it's had a lot of friction to it. Um, there's a lot of new systems coming out that, that allow that data to be acquired without any human interaction or, or friction, as we call it. Uh, machine data coming off the machine, streaming via Bluetooth to a device, then up to a cloud. Um, most of us operate up until now based on our memory. And what we should have done last year, which is the, the mm-hmm. shortest and most apparent, uh, we're trying to move beyond that, uh, see a little bigger space, uh, start to see what, what is actually influencing yields over a bigger area as we start to look at aggregate data. Um, in my farming operation, I may only see um, one hybrid performance on a soil type and a very minimal amount of acres. But if we could aggregate that data, uh, we can see a lot more things quicker and over a bigger scale, make advancements that much quicker. Thank you very much. Nick Evans, I want to bring you in on this. Do you agree with Steve that uh, the technology may be there, but the farmers are not embracing it? Talk to me. Well, I think that's part of it, uh, Bonnie, but, uh, uh, but the other part is there is so much data. If you look at the factors mm-hmm. that affect the yield of, let's say, a corn crop, the factors that affect that from one year to the next or from one farm to the next are, are, are multiple. Um, of course, you've got the obvious one of the weather. So the weather from one year to the next or from one farm to the next is going to be different. And then you'll have the soil type, and then you'll have the soil fertility, and then you'll have the date at which it was planted, and you have the way in which it was cult- the soil was cultivated. And so just, just in there, you've got multiple factors which go to make up what is the right way to grow that crop. And um, so it's not only about the data and the collecting of the data and the sources of the data. It's about what do you do with it when you've got all that data. Uh, and this is the, the big data, the big data issue that, that's at the heart of, uh, of today's discussion. Okay. Because any particular farmer will have will have his own information and um, and information provided to him by others, but. To be able to mash that data up and to be able to do something with it that actually makes sense is the, is the core of the problem. Nick, does this mean that people have to employ what we like to call in the business, uh, and Lauren knows this and maybe you, you and Steve do as well, uh, it's called a data scientist. Does a farmer need to have on his or her staff a data scientist to say, well, this is how we're going to collect it. This is how we're going to mash it and smash it and pull out the nuggets of gold, and here we're going to grow that golden corn, that this is the way we need to 
optimize the data to optimize the crop? Or is this something that farmers on their own? I'm just wondering. Uh, Nick, you can answer that, and then I'll get Lauren in on this and Steve as well. What do you see? Yeah, well, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a trend. I was talking to a, uh, a crop chemical manufacturer the other day who, um, who was dealing with some farms over in uh, Eastern Europe and Ukraine. And uh, some of those farms over there are upwards of half a million acres. And in those instances, they have the scale and the ability to be able to employ data scientists and, and personnel who actually are sophisticated IT um, uh, pe- people who actually yes. can collect all this data and actually can undertake big data analysis within their own right. And that's, of course, going to be unusual for a, for a, you know, a, a normal-scale farmer. Um, so they're going to need to rely on services provided by their agronomists or their distributors or the manufacturer to, to be able to take that data that's relevant to their farm and to undertake that data analysis for them. Thank you. Lauren, what do you observe? Well, yeah, I think, as, as Nick says, only, only really large farms are going to have the uh, resources to have data science people on their staff. It's mm-hmm. much more like that it's the agribusinesses that the farmers do business with that have the data scientists who are analyzing the data so that those businesses can provide customized services to the farmer. So, for instance, if I want to know, and this is a big deal right now, corn was uh, – Corn prices tanked last year. A lot of farmers didn't even break even if they planted corn. So everybody's trying right now because it's planting time right now, trying to figure out, do I plant corn? Do I plant soybeans? Those are the two biggies. How much money am I going to make on each? What's my yield? And what kind of seeds am I going to use? So who helps them figure out what kind of seeds are just optimal for the the weather as it's predicted to be, the soil in the field, uh, and all that, all that stuff that goes into affecting the microclimate of a field. It's the agribusiness, agribusinesses who sell the products, who have the data scientists, mm-hmm. who collect the data from the farmers and from weather stations and the labs that do soil sampling and the seed banks that keep, you know, genetic seed traits that associate them with, you know, how the crops grow. All that data is what gets analyzed to, to say to the farmer, uh, hey, why don't you plant this particular variety of soybeans in this field at this depth here, at this different depth over here, at this space here, at this different space over there, and so on and so forth, and fertilize it with variable rate application of fertilizer and spray it with this, that, or the other crop protection chemical depending on whether, what the weather's going to be when. And imagine all the amounts of data that go into making that kind of an analysis and recommendation. It's huge. I'm so glad I don't have to do it. <laughs> but you know about it. You know how big it is. Uh, Steve Pitsick, let's get you back on this part of the conversation. Any comments to Nick and to Lauren? Yeah, just following up on Lauren's comments about us making decisions, and we won't have data scientists. We're not to the size that we can employ them. But we'll be you know, sharing with other farmers, uh, data scientists, so so we'll be in an aggregate database. Uh, what I what I look for is you know we're we're making decisions based on what we should have done last year. It's never the right decision going forward. But if we can look at this data, uh, we can make much better decisions on a much broader scale. Because what I saw on my farm may not work on the next guy's farm, but as we can start to sort this thing out, uh, we'll start to 
to, to find things that work. And that's what we're looking for. Thank you. I'm going to turn to Nick Evans' discussion statements, some of the notes you sent me before the show. Nick, something interesting here. I was asking about culture change in the industry. Well, let's talk about this. You say farmer-centric thinking is the new norm. And let me just read a couple more notes. You say, historically, the industry talked about the supply chain, from raw material producer to manufacturer to distribution to retail to farmer, and from farmer to the trader to the primary processor, the secondary, on and on and on. So we have this huge long chain and you say today everyone is seeking to at least better understand the customer and even more than that better still influence decision making to encourage trade and business and we brought the business of farming in and the customer so talk to me how well is this farmer-centric thinking this norm is it a trend that's already here or is it just starting to starting to take hold nick i think um yeah it's a it's a good question uh it's a it's a good point uh ronnie the the um See, historically, you're absolutely right. You're, you're right. The, it was a supply chain, and, um, uh, and, and that's how it was viewed. But today, it is much more about the farmer being at the center of things. And the, the, uh, if you took, take, take, for example, a food processor, a food processor wants to know the provenance and where the, um, the product has been, uh, has been produced and how it was produced. And clearly that's for something like, say, beef, for example. That's clear. People want to know, was that beef produced using organic feed? What, uh, what was the animal injected with? Has it been routinely treated with hormones or antibiotics? And, and processors want to know that to be able to give information to the, uh, to the consumer. And to be able to get that data, of course, you need to have a relationship with the producer, the farmer producer. Um, so I think that's quite a clear example. But then if you talk about the, the input side of farming, um, as farmers, as the number of farmers um, around the world um, decreases as they get bigger and bigger and the economies of scale uh, take hold, so everybody wants to be able to influence the decision, make, the, the, the decision that the farmer uh, is looking to make mm-hmm. uh, about which products he uses and so on. And that's really where some of this precision agriculture um, drive is coming from because uh, manufacturers and distributors want to be able to provide that farmer, the farmers, with services, data services, to be able to analyze the data that's coming off the farm um, and environmental data to be able to recommend the ways in which that farmer can produce the best profitable, best and most profitable crop off his land. Thank you, so Nick. Everybody's looking to influence the farmer. Everybody is, certainly, and a lot of advertising going on there. Lauren McCallum, talk to us. What do you think about uh, this historic look back and this new trend to farmer-centric thinking with the farmer at the center? Thoughts, observations? Yeah, yeah well, if, if you think about it, it, it's in one way the same kind of thing you th- see in other, like, retail engagements. Uh, if I can go get a Nike to make me a tennis shoe that's exactly what I want, a customized shoe, which I can. Um, they've got to know, they've got to collect information from me and know a lot about me to do that. So farmers are buying products from agribusinesses, and that's a that's a competitive market. There are a lot of people who could sell me seed or fertilizer or any kind of crop nutrient, any soil amendment I need. Who am I going to buy from? Uh, I'm going to buy from somebody who can give me customized services to suit exactly this field, exactly this part of this field, which is down by the creek and it's kind of wet and things don't do so well down there, 
But if there's a company whose agronomist can say, plant this down there because this particular seed is particularly moisture tolerant, spray this fungicide, treat the seed with this before you plant it, and plant it this way. If somebody can tell me that, I will buy my seed from them as opposed to from the next guy. So getting close, this being farmer-centric, is in aid not just of growing enough food to feed everybody, the world, which is the, the larger picture. It is in aid of commercial transactions that, like those transactions everybody engages in. Interesting. Steve, what do you observe? Uh, very much like Lauren was talking about. Um, you know, agronomy is local. There's a lot of companies trying to roll out products that, that work everywhere. And, and our farms in the Midwest, are uh, everywhere is different. You go 100 miles away, uh, the soil types are different, the weather patterns are different. And even within the field, the, the fields are, are different because of where the glaciers deposited soil, whatever. We need to do our things much more granular. And we can do a much higher level of management. Uh, we can we can do things. We don't go out here and just spread fertilizer hoping that we get a good crop. We can't afford to. We put just the right amounts where we need to to provide a good crop, uh, same way with pesticides, uh, whatever it may be. We're, we're a very sustainable uh, group. Uh, in the Midwest here, there's a lot of farms that are over 100 years. That's, mm. That spells sustainability to me. You know, it's different than England, but uh, uh, the way it is here, every operation is sustainable. Okay. Lauren, I hear you. Yeah, we're youngins over here compared to the farms over over Nick's way. What can I say? But still, um, one of one of my colleagues and a guy that that Steve knows, uh, uh, Jack Roman, happens to be a techie guy. Works for Hitachi, but he's also a huge farmer in Pennsylvania. And his family got their farm as a land grant from William Penn, and they've been running the same mm. farm since then. Wow. So, yeah, wow. I was totally floored when he told me that. I knew he farmed, but I didn't know it was that old of a family farm. But so they're, they're making the decision, as I said, you know, what particular, what crop, what seeds to plant. And they're relying on the various agribusiness companies they do business with to provide them with advice to do that. And whatever that advice is going to be, they, they intend to pass that farm on to their kids and their grandkids and their great-grandkids so they have to a they have to stay in business, right? Mm-hmm. They can't go broke, um, and they can't treat the land badly, which certainly has an you know is connected to what you fertilize with, what you spray with, and all that kind of stuff. Thank you, Lauren. I want to move into an issue we haven't brought up yet, I don't think, data privacy. We're talking about, uh, I'm looking at your notes, Lauren. You say high-end farm equipment like tractors, planters, and combines come equipped for a price with onboard computers that can control the operations and collect huge amounts of data from farming operations. And then I'm scrolling down to your notes and you say, but the information a farmer collects about his or her farm operations is valuable. Farmer can use it to improve operations and on and on and on. Talk to us a little bit about privacy. Who's worried about it? Uh, has it become an issue? Are there any, I, I hesitate to say, are there any court cases on uh, somebody misusing or propagating, there's a good farm word, propagating someone's data for someone else's benefit? What do you see, Lauren? Huh. I'm, not, I'm not aware of any court cases, um, th- though there could be, that 
the issue, I guess, is so it, Steve um, collects all the yield data from his farm, say, for mm-hmm. instance, or I do, or any other farmer, and they want to share it with the company that will help them determine the best thing to plant in their field. But information about how much you harvested exactly from what field is really valuable information if you're in, say, the commodity trading business. Um, if you knew exactly how much farmers were harvesting at any given minute in real time, and their equipment can collect that information and pass it on, right? You mm-hmm. could wheel and deal in the commodity market. So not only is the information valuable to the farmer, it's valuable to other people. And how much crop is harvested from a particular field, that, that information, that ownership of that piece of data, surely that lies with the farmer. I think there's organizations like the American Farm Bureau who are working to put out policies that companies sign on to, uh, and many agribusinesses have, for example, signed on to agreements to say, we agree that much of this data, I mean, equipment data is another story, does John Deere own the information mm-hmm. that comes from the sensors in its tractors? Yeah, I'm, probably, maybe, I'm not quite sure. But the, the issue is who really owns what kind of data, and if they own it, can they determine how to share it and make sure that those rules are followed, which is kind of what the, you know, the neutral, ne- neutral hub concept that we started with was all about. And maybe, and Nick is a... I don't know who you want to talk next, but either Nick one is, is one fine. of the biggest proponents of this neutral hub idea. Let, let's talk to Nick. Nick, what are your thoughts? Data privacy and farmers? I, I think it's a very big issue. Um, I really do. And um, and part of the part of the, um, the the first comment we had about the decision making of farmers and saying what do they do? Well, if we say that that uh, precision in agriculture and, and the utilization of all this data. Is the, is the new way forward. It will take some time for farmers to adopt that, not least, not least because of the fact that to do that, they do have to share data, and farmers are intensely private people, typically, mm-hmm. and, they, and they're individual businesses in their own right. So if they do elect to share data, um, they'll want to be absolutely sure that they can say who they're going to share it with and really then what that data is actually going to be used for. I don't think anybody, any farm would have an issue with sharing data with somebody who's going to give them information back that will help them to grow yields, to grow their yields or grow their profitability, and that would clearly be in the farmer's interests. But um, if there if the, if the was a suspicion that the recipient of the data was going to do something with it that disadvantaged or potentially disadvantaged the farmer, then there'd be a greater reluctance to do so. And, and that's why you know, we're the, the, the concept of the, of the neutral, independent cloud platform that farmers and their farm management systems can connect with and use that platform to be able to elect and share permission with whom they share that data um, is, one that we're, uh, is one that we're supporting. Very important. And Nick, before I get Steve in on this conversation, I just want you to tell us, please, very briefly, what is First for Farming, F4F, that you founded? What, what does your organization do? Um, what it does, uh, Bonnie, is uh, we're a, a neutral cloud platform that allows businesses in the agricultural sector to, to connect and uh, facilitate e-business between, between parties. 
through a, through a neutral, independent platform. Thank you very and much. We started off with transactional documents, and, uh, yeah. and now we're working on transactional documents plus. Plus is always a good thing. That's what we're talking about is, is growing the crops and growing the opportunities. Steve Pitzik, I want to hear what you have to say about data privacy. Has this been an issue for you? Is this something that concerns you or farmers in your part of the, the region, the world? Yeah, there's there's a lot of chatter about data privacy. Uh, we're talking about it a lot. I think uh, the value of a third-party cloud is huge. Uh, I think farmers are, in general would be more uh, willing to participate if it's going to a third party versus a, a, a corporation that may have value to be gained from it. I think one thing that we talk about data a lot in, in general, consumer data um, has value from the individual person. It might be a credit card. It might be a social security number. It could be something that somebody could hack into and get value. Uh, farmer data, an individual farmer's data isn't worth a lot. But the mm-hmm. aggregate, many thousands of farmers, and you start looking at trends, that kind of data is, is huge. So it's a little different in what the value of the data is than, than the conventional um, data that we talk about. Steve, I want to talk a little bit about data points while we're on the subject of data and big data. I'm looking at your notes here, and you say agricultural production data dwarfs, everybody listen to this, it dwarfs the combination of medical and banking data together, according to Steve. He says one acre could generate 10,000 data points a year at a farm size of 2,000 acres. That's 20 million points that can be cross-referenced for one farming operation. That's a lot of data. Is this concept of big data, of the data points, of the sensors, of, of just this, this whole concept that there's information out there to be harvested. Yes, I'm using that word. Is this daunting for newcomers to farming or, for, shall we say, for the old farmhands, uh, Steve, who just didn't see it this way? They never thought about it. It was more like you said, instinct of what did grandpa do and what did I do last year and, and my hunch, that kind of thing, and whether it's raining or sunny today. So is this, is this concept just so foreign or is it starting to be really embraced? I think a lot of farmers are, are, are thinking about it. Everything that happens out here happens for a reason. It's just very hard in our in our minds to, to sort out all these different things that affect yield. And, and with data now, we can start to sort that with computers and try to figure out what the influencers are. Um, one of the things about farmers, and, and one of the, the, the resistances of this data, is that as a farmer... You've got mental knowledge. You know, kind of, as I said, the hunch or the what I should have done last year. You've got that in your mind, and, and you've kind of got it secured. Nobody else can get it. So farmers are a little bit leery of giving up and letting machine do something that they've been able to do themselves mm-hmm. and, and kept the outsiders from it. They've got kind of a proprietary uh, um a system that they, you know, they've got in their head that they've learned from grandpa or they've learned over their career. And, and the willingness to let a machine do that or a computer, if you will, uh, tell you the better way, that's some of the, the, the friction or hold up from allowing us to go forward. My farm, my way. 
Hmm. I, I want to talk a little bit more about this, the, the data collection. Lauren, I'm looking at your notes, and you say the pieces of equipment, and we mentioned before the tractors, the planners, the combines, and the onboard computers, pieces of equipment don't all speak the same language. Data captured by one company's equipment will not be in the same format as data captured by another. Let's piggyback on to what Steve was just talking about. Does this make it harder for farmers to embrace the idea that, yeah, this will happen better, my crops will be better, my farm will be more productive, my customers will be happy, my profits will go up and up and up. I can help feed the world if I just embrace this and buy this equipment. But now you're saying, wait a minute, it's like a Tower of Babel or Babel, however you pronounce it. What do you think is the uh, the result of the? What's going to happen from this discordant speaking of data language? Lauren? Well, what happens right now is simply that it makes things more difficult for the farmer and for the companies that do business with him because uh, ultimately, what, what is it that collects the data from your field? Well, the weather data comes from somewhere else. Uh, the soil sample data, you go out there, you know, and you dig holes in the ground at different grid, different grid patterns. You send it off to a lab that, that analyzes. That data comes from somewhere else. But the data about uh, how, what you planted, how deep you planted it, uh, where you planted it, uh, what you put on your field, and what yield you got, that data is collected by the equipment itself. And if your planter is from one company, that company's data collection protocol will be what it is. And say you're a combine that that, um, harvests your crops and records Mm -hmm. your yield is from another company. And you need that, that information combined to do analytics to determine, you know, like given these circumstances in planting, what produced the best yield. So right now, I I suppose people will suck the data into, um, you can suck it into this neutral cloud that that, uh, Mm -hmm. Nick's company is is very good at, but they do all the data transformations and everything to make all the data from different places usable in the same way. That's tough. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Long term, there are standards organizations um, like Ag Gateway, like the Open Ag Data Alliance, who are trying to work with people to say, let's represent a certain kind of data in a certain way. How long is it going to take us to get there? I have no idea. It would, quite a while, I think. Um, I don't know that it's prohibiting farmers from collecting data. It probably, in some cases, is. If it's just too much work, there's not enough return on investment to figure out Mm -hmm. how to make all the data work together. Um, but they are doing it now. They're just doing it as heavy lifting as opposed to it, 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 it impedes uh, commerce and impedes better yields. Steve, thoughts on this? What are you doing about it, about data coming in different formats? And Lauren made a comment here in her note. She says, data captured. Oh, no, I'm looking. Uh, should pity the poor farmer who wants to put all the information into his or her farm management system for analysis, all this data coming from disparate sources in, in different formats. Steve, how do you deal with that? Uh, it, it's been an interesting ride here. So I'm a pretty much of a, a, a John Deere guy. Uh, John Deere has their system. I'm also, the last uh, three, four, five years, uh, gotten into the precision planting, Monsanto climate uh, type structure. So we're, we're trying to merge through different methods some of this data together. And it, it presents a challenge, but it also presents an opportunity to try to figure it out to build the systems that, that go forward and make this stuff work. So hopefully we can be on the forefront of that and, and make this stuff all come together 
without any friction to it and just kind of happen in the background. Um, the day will come when we, we talk about how hard it was. <laughs> I hear optimism in there. Nick Evans, thoughts on this optimism that's coming from Steve and the historical look back on how he's trying to put this all together? What do you think, Nick? What do you observe from FRF? Yeah. Yeah, well, it is a big challenge. And, um, you know, if you look at, uh, if you look at farm management systems, because much of the data that, um, that Lauren and Steve have talked about, you know, yield data and, um, soil fertility data and crop prices and crop input, um, prices and so on, that, that data is all stored in, in farm management systems. And out there in the, in the big wide world, there are hundreds and hundreds of farm management systems. So if you're looking to amalgamate data in order to come up with the best way to grow a crop of, a crop of corn in southwest, southwest Oregon, well, you're going to need to date data to compare from not just from southwest Oregon, but from parts of Australia, parts of Brazil, where they've got exactly the same soil conditions and the same climate and so on. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to come up with a recipe, you need to pull in farm data and farm, farm information from multiple farm systems. Um, and I think that's part of the challenge, really. You've got to – not all farm management systems are going to homogenize into producing common outputs or common file outputs or common data formats. And therefore, sat in the middle somewhere, we need, you need some way of harmonizing and mapping and transforming and translating data into a common format. Thank you. Like I a, have a like question. the ultimate translator. Ultimate Translate. I have a question for the whole panel. I don't think we ever described or defined at the very beginning of the show what is the meaning of the term precision farming. We're talking about it and around it, but what is the definition? Steve, what, I, don't, I don't know if you all have the same the same dictionary for that one. I haven't looked it up, but I want to know what exactly, how precise, here's my question, how precise is precision farming ever going to be? How precise is it now? Steve, why don't you start us off? Ah, interesting, interesting thought there. So, so in my world, precision farming is doing things um, on, a, on a grid, trying to, trying to build a picture here, a grid that may be 60 foot or, or, or 20 meters by 20 meters, that square, versus the whole field, which we, we didn't have the means uh, to do it any more grander, granular than that up until a few years ago. We would weigh the production from the whole farm or the whole field, and that's what our yield was. Now we're looking at it much more granular and looking at, at that 60 to 60 or 20 meter by 20 meter grid and trying to figure out what changed there, what do we need to change. Okay. Nick Evans, precision, how precise? Yes. Well, for me, the definition at a high level, uh, Bonnie, it's, it's about growing more, uh, more crops using less inputs on the same area of land. Um, and to do that, clearly you have to be more precise about where and how much of your inputs, your crop chemicals, your seed or your fertilizer, you apply to, to any particular piece of land uh, that you're traveling over with your, with your tractor and your machinery. So the precise application of crop inputs uh, and the, uh, both amounts and the timing. That, for me, is what precision agriculture is about. Thank you. Lauren McCallum, I want you to add your definition, and then we're going to circle back to Steve because I'm going to give you each about 90 seconds for your predictions for the year 2020 or whatever you see in the crystal ball that I know is growing on the farm somewhere oh, yeah. under that earth, under that well-fertilized earth. So, Lauren, decision, oh, precision, what, what do you see? 
Okay, well, I concur with both Nick and Steve that precision means commonsensically what a lot of people think. It is a finer level of detail. So Mm -hmm. uh, for precision farming is uh, more precise, uh, finer level of control over inputs to a farm, which is seeds, weeds, you know, the seeds, the fertilizers, the crop protection chemicals. So, and it's also more precise recording of the output at a more granular level. But it is also tied into the ability to predict. Precision farming is all about taking this data and being able to predict what will happen. Given this combination of circumstances, what is the expected outcome? That outcome is yield. And that's how, so the precision, a prescription, they talk about farm prescriptions, like a medicine, and it would be like, if you take this every day for 10 days, you will grow this. So that's mm-hmm. kind of, it, it is granular control of data with the goal of predicting agricultural uh, outputs. Thank you. I've got to circle back to Steve Pitsick. I've got exactly one minute for each of you, and I mean one minute. We can't grow it in anything bigger than that. Steve, can you fast forward to the year 2020? What do you think our discussion would be on precision farming? Just give me a 60-second overview. Go. Oh, that's tough. That's tough. I'm, I'm not sure what uh, what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone five, six years from now. But the uh, the industry is changing. It's morphing. Um, I think we're going to go to, uh, as we as we get more data, we can model things. And I think with the advent of supercomputers, uh, very fast computers, we can model what we model what we do. So instead of going by my hunch or what Dad used to do of applying fertilizer at this stage, we can model it based on rainfalls, uh, accumulated degree days, things like that, and do things much more precise and scientifically than just the uh, the uh, you know shot in the dark based off of experience. So I think that's Thank what we're you. going, whether it happens in five yep. years or ten, I'm not sure. That's fine. Good enough. Nick Evans, I can give you exactly 60 seconds. Predictions, go. Okay, well, I'm going to go a little bit further out, Bonnie. I'm going to say mm. by 2050, the pressure, on the, the pressure on the population and the pressure on land will be such that uh, much of the cropping will be produced uh, inside, whether you remove the variability of climate. And um, uh, take, for example, and already today they're growing vegetables in, in buildings um, you know, beyond greenhouses in multi-story, multi-story, multiple-story buildings, removing the variability. You just take an area, say, for example, the Empire State Building. If you make, divide that up into one-meter one meter floors, you've got about 700 acres, something like that, inside the Empire State Building. Well, that's a, that's a good-sized farm in most parts of the world today. And uh, where you can control climate, you can control nutrition, and you can control output. So, uh, and really maximize yields. So, quite possibly, looking out to that point, uh, industri- industrialization of farming and using buildings to, uh, to control everything. Fascinating. Lauren, I saved 30 seconds for you. We're almost out of time. Go ahead. Predictions, go. Okay. Science fiction perspective. Um, either things will have progressed to the point at which in one sci-fi short story, the combines that travel these giant fields are, in fact, small cities and people live in them. Uh, there's a short story called The Grain King about that. Or potentially apocalypse, all of this will have come to naught and we'll be back to farming like my Amish neighbor's farm with horses and no electronic equipment. 
Either way, I, re- I don't know. I, <laughs> I've been to Amish country. We used to go there as a family on summer vacation from time to time. Fascinating, and they're still there. Thank you so much. Big shout-out to Steve Pitsick. Thank you for joining us, Steve. I know you're busy. Nick Evans, thanks for calling in from the U.K. Laura McCallum, pleasure to speak with all three of you. We've had so many people tweeting. I just can't keep up with it, but thank you to series sponsor Matt Small, and thank you to Stefan Gertzkin for, for uh, handling this and getting us all together. And I want to do a quick shout-out to Mandy Lynn, who tweeted, that she wonders if bachelor Chris Solis uses precision farming by leveraging big data, and she predicts that maybe data scientists should start a precision farming consultancy based on big data. Love the predictions, Mandy. You didn't know you'd be mentioned on the radio. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. I'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. Eastern Time with a new edition of Coffee Break with Game Changers, and we'll be talking with a faculty member and two MBA students from Baylor University in Texas talking about customer engagement along with SAP's Bill how i'll talk to you tomorrow hey here's my call to action fasten your seatbelt. what are you waiting for right now go out and be a game changer today signing off bye bye thanks again for tuning in to industry cloud trends with game changers presented by sap the best run businesses run sap to keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 p.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.